listening to Nightlight. Hello and welcome to part two of this special Easter series of Nightlights in which I'm sharing with you J.C. Ryle's meditations and expositions on the Easter story taken from Luke chapters 22 through 24. In part one, we covered the betrayal of Jesus by Judas, the Last Supper, as well as Jesus's agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. So we're going to pick up the story from Luke chapter 22, verse 47, where Jesus is arrested. I pray that these readings will be a blessing to you this Easter. God bless you. Nightlight Insights Luke chapter 22, verses 47 through 53. And while he yet spake, behold, a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them, and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? When they which were about him saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? And one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye thus far. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said unto the chief priests and captains of the temple and the elders which were come out to him, Be ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves? When I was daily with you in the temple, ye stretch forth no hands against me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. We should learn for one thing from these verses, that the worst and most wicked acts may be done under a show of love to Christ. We read that when the traitor Judas brought the enemies of Christ to take him, he betrayed him with a kiss. He made a pretense of affection and respect at the very moment when he was about to deliver his master into the hands of his deadliest enemies. Conduct like this, unhappily, is not without its parallels. The pages of history record many an instance of enormous wickedness wrought out and perfected under the garb of religion. The name of God has too often been pressed into the service of persecution, treachery, and crime. When Jezebel would have Naboth killed, she ordered a fast to be proclaimed and false witnesses to accuse him of blaspheming God and the king. 1 Kings 21 verses 9 and 10 When Count de Montfort led a crusade against the Albigenses, he ordered them to be murdered and pillaged as an act of service to Christ's church. When the Spanish Inquisition tortured and burned suspected heretics, they justified their abominable dealings by a profession of zeal for God's truth. The false apostle Judas Iscariot has never lacked successors and imitators. There have always been men ready to betray Christ with a kiss and willing to deliver the gospel to its enemies under a show of respect. Conduct like this we need not doubt is utterly abominable in the sight of God. To injure the cause of religion under any circumstances is a great sin, but to injure it while we pretend to show kindness is the blackest of crimes. To betray Christ at any time is the very height of wickedness. 
but to betray him with a kiss proves a man to have become a very child of hell. We should learn for another thing in these verses that it is much easier to fight a little for Christ than to endure hardness and go to prison and death for his sake. We read that when our Lord's enemies drew near to take him, one of his disciples smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Yet the zeal of that disciple was very short-lived. His courage soon died away. The fear of man overcame him. By and by, when our Lord was led away prisoner, he was led away alone. The disciple, who was so ready to fight and smite with the sword, had actually forsaken his master and fled. The lesson before us is deeply instructive. To suffer patiently for Christ is far more difficult than to work actively. To sit still and endure calmly is far more hard than to stir about and take part in the battle. Crusaders will always be found more numerous than martyrs. The passive graces of religion are far more rare and precious than the active graces. Work for Christ may be done from many spurious motives, from excitement, from emulation, from party spirit, or from love of praise. Suffering for Christ will seldom be endured from any but one motive. That motive is the grace of God. We shall do well to remember these things in forming our estimate of the comparative grace of professing Christians. We err greatly if we suppose that those who do public work and preach and speak and write and fill the eyes of the church are those who are the most honorable in God's sight. Such men are often far less esteemed by him than some poor unknown believer who's been lying for years on his back, enduring pain without a murmur. Their public efforts perhaps will prove at last to have brought less glory to Christ than his patience, and to have done less good than his prayers. The grand test of grace is patient suffering. I will show Saul, said the Lord Jesus, what great things he shall suffer for my name. Acts 9.16 Peter, we may be sure, did far less good when he drew his sword and cut off a man's ear than he did when he stood calmly before the council as a prisoner and said, We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Acts 4.20 We should learn, lastly, from these verses, that the time during which evil is permitted to triumph is fixed and limited by God. We read that our Lord said to his enemies when they took him, This is your hour and the power of darkness. The sovereignty of God over everything done upon earth is absolute and complete. The hands of the wicked are bound until he allows them to work. 
They can do nothing without his permission. But this is not all. The hands of the wicked cannot stir one moment before God allows them to begin and cannot stir one moment after God commands them to stop. The very worst of Satan's instruments are working in chains. The devil could not touch Job's property or person until God allowed him. He could not prevent Job's prosperity returning when God's designs on Job were accomplished. Our Lord's enemies could not take and slay him until the appointed hour of his weakness arrived. Nor yet could they prevent his rising again when the hour came in which he was declared the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. Romans 1.4 When he was led forth to Calvary, it was their hour. When he rose victorious from the grave, it was his. The verses before us throw light on the history of believers in ages gone by, from the time of the apostles down to the present day. They have often been severely oppressed and persecuted, but the hand of their enemies has never been allowed entirely to prevail. The hour of their trials has generally been succeeded by a season of light. The triumph of their enemies has never been entire and complete. They have had their hour, but they've had no more. After the persecution about Stephen came the conversion of Paul. After the Marian persecution came the establishment of English Protestantism. The longest night has had its morning. The sharpest winters have been followed by spring. The heaviest storms have been changed for blue sky. Let us take comfort in these words of our Lord in looking forward to our own future lives. If we are followers of Christ, we shall have an hour of trial, and it may be a long hour too. But we may rest assured that the darkness shall not last one moment longer than God sees fit for us. In his good time, it shall vanish away. At evening time, there shall be light. Finally, let us take comfort in these words of our Lord in looking forward to the future history of the church and the world. Clouds and darkness may gather around the ark of God. Persecutions and tribulations may assail the people of God. The last days of the church and world will probably be their worst days. But the hour of trial, however grievous, will have an end. Even at the worst, we may boldly say, the night is far spent and the day is at hand. Romans 13, 12. Like a candle in the night, it's nightlight. Luke chapter 22, verses 54 through 62. Then took they him, and led him, and brought him into the high priest's house. And Peter followed afar off. 
And when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall and were set down together, Peter sat down among them. But a certain maid beheld him as he sat by the fire and earnestly looked upon him and said, This man was also with him. And he denied him, saying, Woman, I know him not. And after a little while another saw him and said, Thou art also of them. And Peter said, Man, I am not. And about the space of one hour after, another confidently affirmed, saying, Of a truth, this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter said, Man, I know not what thou sayest. And immediately while he yet spake, the cock crew. And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. The verses we have now read describe the fall of the Apostle Peter. It is a passage which is deeply humbling to the pride of man, but singularly instructive to true Christians. The fall of Peter has been a beacon to the church and has probably preserved myriads of souls from destruction. It is a passage which supplies strong proof that the Bible is inspired and Christianity is from God. If the Christian religion had been the invention of uninspired men, its first historians would never have told us that one of the chief apostles denied his master three times. The story of Peter's fall teaches us, firstly, how small and gradual are the steps by which men may go down into great sins. The various steps in Peter's fall are clearly marked out by the Gospel writers. They ought always to be observed in reading this part of the Apostles' history. The first step was proud self-confidence. Though all men denied Christ, yet he never would. He was ready to go with him both to prison and to death. The second step was indolent neglect of prayer. When his master told him to pray, lest he should enter into temptation, he gave way to drowsiness and was found asleep. The third step was facilitating indecision. When the enemies of Christ came upon him, Peter first fought, then ran away, then turned again, and finally followed afar off. The fourth step was mingling with bad company. He went into the high priest's house and sat among the servants by the fire, trying to conceal his religion, and hearing and seeing all manner of evil. The fifth and last step was the natural consequence of the preceding fall. He was overwhelmed with fear when suddenly charged with being a disciple. The snare was round his neck. He could not escape. He plunged deeper into error than ever. He denied his blessed master three times. The mischief, be it remembered, had been done before. The denial was only the disease coming to a head. Let us beware of the beginnings of backsliding, however small. We never know what we may come to if we once leave the king's highway. The professing Christian who begins to say of any sin or evil habit, 
it is but a little one, is in imminent danger. He is sowing seeds in his heart, which will one day spring up and bear bitter fruit. It is a homely saying that if men take care of the pence, the pounds will take care of themselves. We may borrow a good spiritual lesson from the saying. The Christian who keeps his heart diligently in little things shall be kept from great falls. The story of Peter's fall teaches us, secondly, how very far a believer may backslide. In order to see this lesson clearly, the whole circumstances of Peter's case ought to be fully weighed. He was a chosen apostle of Christ. He had enjoyed greater spiritual privileges than most men in the world. He had just received the Lord's Supper. He had just heard that wonderful discourse recorded in the 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters of John. He had been most plainly warned of his own danger. He had boasted most loudly that he was ready for anything that might come upon him, and yet this very man denies his gracious master, and that repeatedly, and after intervals giving him space for reflection, he denies him once, twice, and three times. The best and highest believer is a poor, weak creature, even at his best times. Whether he knows it or not, he carries within him an almost boundless capacity of wickedness, however fair and decent his outward conduct may seem. There is no enormity of sin into which he may not run if he does not watch and pray and if the grace of God does not hold him up. When we read the falls of Noah, Lot, and Peter, we only read what might possibly befall any of ourselves. Let us never presume, let us never indulge in high thoughts about our own strength or look down upon others. Whatever else we pray for, let us daily pray that we may walk humbly, with God. Micah 6, 8. The story of Peter's fall teaches us, thirdly, the infinite mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a lesson which is brought out most forcibly by a fact which is only recorded in Luke's Gospel. We are told that when Peter denied Christ the third time, and the rooster crowed, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. These words are deeply touching. Surrounded by bloodthirsty and insulting enemies, in the full anticipation of horrible outrages, an unjust trial, and a painful death, the Lord Jesus yet found time to think kindly of his poor, erring disciple. Even then, he would have Peter know that he did not forget him. Sorrowfully, no doubt, but not angrily, he turned and looked straight at Peter. There was deep meaning in that look. It was a sermon which Peter never forgot. The love of Christ toward his people is a deep well which has no bottom. 
Let us never measure it by comparison with any kind of love of man or woman. It exceeds all other love, as far as the sun exceeds the rushlight. There is about it a mine of compassion and patience and readiness to forgive sin, of whose riches we have but a faint conception. Let us not be afraid to trust that love when we first feel our sins. Let us never be afraid to go on trusting it after we have once believed. No man need despair, however far he may have fallen, if he will only repent and turn to Christ. If the heart of Jesus was so gracious when he was a prisoner in the judgment hall, we surely need not think it less gracious when he sits in glory at the right hand of God. The story of Peter's fall teaches us, lastly, how bitter sin is to believers when they've fallen into it and discovered their fall. This is a lesson which stands out plainly on the face of the verses before us. We are told that when Peter remembered the warning he had received and saw how far he had fallen, he went out and wept bitterly. He found out by experience the truth of Jeremiah's words, It is an evil and a bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord. Jeremiah 2.19 He felt keenly the truth of Solomon saying, The backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways. Proverbs 14.14 14. No doubt he could have said with Job, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job 42.6 Sorrow like this, let us always remember, is an inseparable companion of true repentance. Here lies the grand distinction between repentance unto salvation and unavailing remorse. Remorse can make a man miserable like Judas Iscariot, but it can do no more. It does not lead him to God. Repentance makes a man's heart soft and his conscience tender and shows itself in real turning to a father in heaven. The falls of a graceless professor are falls from which there is no rising again. But the fall of a true saint always ends in deep contrition, self-abasement and amendment of life. Let us take heed before we leave this passage that we always make a right use of Peter's fall. Let us never make it an excuse for sin. Let us learn from his sad experience to watch and pray lest we fall into temptation. If we do fall, let us believe that there is hope for us as there was for him. But above all, let us remember that if we fall as Peter fell, we must repent as Peter repented. Inspiring you to draw closer to God. You're listening to Nightlight. Luke chapter 22, verse 63 to 71. 
And the men that held Jesus mocked him and smote him. And when they blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is it that smote thee? And many other things blasphemously spake they against him. And as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together and led him into their council, saying, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. And he said unto them, If I tell you, ye will not believe. And if I also ask you, ye will not answer me, nor let me go. Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then said they all, Art thou then the Son of God? And he said unto them, Ye say that I am. And they said, What need we any further witness? For we ourselves have heard of his own mouth. We should notice, firstly, in these verses, the shameful treatment that our Lord Jesus Christ underwent at the hands of his enemies. We read that the men who held him mocked him, smote him, blindfolded him, and struck him on the face. It was not enough to have taken a prisoner, a person of most blameless and charitable life. They must needs add insult to injury. Conduct like this shows the desperate corruption of human nature, the excesses of savage malice to which unconverted men will sometimes go, and the fierce delight with which they will sometimes trample on the most holy and the most pure, almost justify the strong saying of an old divine that man left to himself is half beast and half devil. He hates God and all who bear anything of God's image about them. The carnal mind is enmity against God, Romans 8, 7. We have probably a very faint idea of what the world would become if it were not for the constant restraint that God mercifully puts upon evil. It is not too much to say that if unconverted men had their own way entirely, the earth would soon be little better than a hell. Our Lord's calm submission to insults like those here described shows the depth of his love towards sinners. Had he so willed, he could have stopped the insolence of his enemies in a moment. He, who would cast out devils with a word, could have summoned legions of angels to his side and scattered those wretched tools of Satan to the winds. But our Lord's heart was set on the great work he'd come on earth to do. He had undertaken to purchase our redemption by his own humiliation, and he did not flinch from paying the uttermost farthing of the price. He had undertaken to drink the bitter cup of vicarious suffering to save sinners, and for the joy set before him he despised the shame and drank the cup to the very dregs. Hebrews 12, 2. Patience, like that which our blessed Lord exhibited on this occasion, should teach his professing people a mighty lesson. We should forbear all murmuring and complaining and irritation of spirit when we are ill-treated by the world. 
What are the occasional insults to which we have to submit compared to the insults which were heaped on our master? Yet, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. He left us an example that we should walk in his steps. Let us go and do likewise. 1 Peter 2, verses 21 to 23. We should notice, secondly, in these verses, the striking prophecy which our Lord delivers about his own coming glory. He says to his insulting enemies, Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Did they find fault with his lowly appearance and want a glorious Messiah? They would see him in glory one day. Did they think he was weak, powerless, and contemptible because at present there was no outward majesty about him? They would behold him one day in the most honorable position in heaven, fulfilling the well-known prophecy of Daniel with all judgment committed to his hands. Daniel 7 verses 9 and 10. Let us take heed that the future glory of Christ forms a part of our creed as much as Christ's cross and passion. Let it be a first principle in our religion that the same Jesus who was mocked, despised, and crucified is he who has now all power in heaven and earth and will one day come again in his Father's glory with all his angels. We see but half the truth if we see nothing but the cross and the first advent. It is essential to our own comfort to see also the second advent and the crown. That same Jesus who stood before the bar of the high priest and of Pilate will one day sit upon a throne of glory and summon all his enemies to appear before him. Happy is that Christian who keeps steadily before his mind that word hereafter. Now, in this present time, believers must be content to take part in their master's sufferings and with him to be weak. Hereafter, they shall share in his glory and with him be strong. Now, like their Lord, they must not be surprised if they are mocked, despised, and disbelieved. Hereafter, they shall sit with him on the right hand of God. We should notice lastly in these verses what a full and bold confession our Lord makes of his own messiahship and divinity. We read that in answer to this question of his enemies, then you claim you are the Son of God. Jesus replied, You are right in saying that I am. The meaning of this short sentence may not be clear at first sight to an English reader. It signifies, in other words, You speak the truth. I am, as you say, the Son of God. Our Lord's confession deprived his enemies of all excuse for unbelief. The Jews can never plead that our Lord left their forefathers in ignorance of his mission and kept them in doubt and suspense. 
Here we see our Lord telling them plainly who he was, and telling them in words which would convey even more to a Jewish mind than they do to ours. And yet the confession had not the least good effect upon the Jews. Their hearts were hardened by prejudice. Their minds were darkened by judicial blindness. The veil was over the eyes of their inward man. They heard our Lord's confession unmoved and only plunged deeper into the most dreadful sin. The bold confession of our Master upon this occasion is intended to be an example to all his believing people. Like him, we must not shrink from speaking out when occasion requires our testimony. The fear of man and the presence of a multitude must not make us hold our peace. Job 31:34. We need not blow a trumpet before us and go out of our way to proclaim our own religion. Opportunities are sure to occur in the daily path of duty. When, like Paul on board ship, we may show whose we are and whom we serve. Acts 27:23. At such opportunities, if we have the mind of Christ, let us not be afraid to show our colors. A confessing master loves bold, uncompromising, and confessing disciples. Those who honor him by an outspoken, courageous testimony, he will honor, because they are walking in his steps. Whoever, he says, shall confess me before men, him will I confess before my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 10, 32. to an international edition of Nightlight, shining God's love light to the world. Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. And the whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, Thou sayest it. Then said Pilate to the chief priests and to the people, I find no fault in this man. And they were the more fierce, saying, He stirreth up the people, teaching throughout all Jewry, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked whether the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged unto Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was at Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him of a long season, because he had heard many things of him, and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. Then he questioned with him in many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him, and Herod, with his men of war, set him at naught, and mocked him, and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him again to Pilate. And the same day Pilate and Herod were made friends together. 
for before they were at enmity between themselves. Let us observe, for one thing in this passage, what false accusations were laid to our Lord Jesus Christ's charge. We are told that the Jews accused him of subverting the nation, forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, and stirring up the people. In all this indictment, we know there was not a word of truth. It was nothing but an ingenious attempt to enlist the feeling of a Roman governor against our Lord. False witness and slander are two favorite weapons of the devil. He was a liar from the beginning and is still the father of lies, John 8.44. When he finds that he cannot stop God's work, his next device is to blacken the character of God's servants and to destroy the value of their testimony. With this weapon, he assaulted David. False witnesses, he says, did rise against me. They laid to my charge things that I knew not. With this weapon, he assaulted the prophets. Elijah was a troubler of Israel. Jeremiah was a man who sought not the welfare of his people, but the hurt. Psalm 35, 11, 1 Kings 18, 17, Jeremiah 38, 4. With this weapon, he assaulted the apostles. They were pestilent fellows and men who turned the world upside down, Acts 24, 5 and 17, 6. With this weapon, he assaulted our Lord all through his ministry. He stirred up his agents to call him a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a Samaritan and a devil, Luke 7.34 and John 8.48. And here, in the verses before us, we find him plying his old weapon to the very last. Jesus is arraigned before Pilate upon charges which are utterly untrue. The servant of Christ must never be surprised if he has to drink of the same cup with his Lord. When he who was holy, harmless, and undefiled was foully slandered, who can expect to escape? If they call the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more would they call them of his household? Matthew 10.25 Nothing is too bad to be reported against a saint. Perfect innocence is no fence against enormous lying, calumny, and misrepresentation. The most blameless character will not secure us against false tongues. We must bear the trial patiently. It is part of the cross of Christ. We must sit still, lean back on God's promises, and believe that in the long run, truth will prevail. Rest in the Lord, says David, and wait patiently for him. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Psalm 37, verse 6 and 7. Let us observe for another thing in this passage the strange and mingled motives which influence the hearts of unconverted great men. We're told that when our Lord was sent by Pilate to Herod, king of Galilee, Herod was exceeding glad, 
for he was desirous to see him of a long season, because he'd heard many things of him, and he hoped to see some miracles done by him. These words are remarkable. Herod was a sensual, worldly man, the murderer of John the Baptist, a man living in foul adultery with his brother's wife. Such a man, we might have supposed, would have had no desire to see Christ. But Herod had an uneasy conscience. The blood of God's murdered saints, no doubt, rose often before his eyes and destroyed his peace. The fame of our Lord's preaching and miracles had penetrated even into his court. It was said that another witness against sin had risen up who was even more faithful and bold than John the Baptist and who confirmed his teaching by works which even the power of kings could not perform. These rumors made Herod restless and uncomfortable. No wonder that his curiosity was stirred and he desired to see Christ. It may be feared that there are many great and rich men like Herod in every age of the church, men without God, without faith, and living only for themselves. They generally live in an atmosphere of their own, flattered, fawned upon, and never told the truth about their souls, haughty, tyrannical, and knowing no will but their own. Yet even these men are sometimes conscience-stricken and afraid. God raises up some bold witness against their sins, whose testimony reaches their ears. At once, their curiosity is stirred. They feel found out and are ill at ease. They flutter round his ministry like the moth around the candle and seem unable to keep away from it, even while they do not obey it. They praise his talents and openly profess their admiration of his power, but they never get any further. Like Herod, their conscience produces within them a morbid curiosity to see and hear God's witnesses. But like Herod, their heart is linked to the world by chains of iron. Tossed to and fro by storms of lust or ungovernable passions, they are never at rest while they live, and after all their fitful struggles of conscience, they die at length in their sins. This is a painful history, but it is the history of many rich men's souls. Let us learn from Herod's case to pity great men. With all their greatness and apparent splendor, they are often thoroughly miserable within. Silks and satins and official robes often cover hearts which are utter strangers to peace. That man knows not what he is wishing who wishes to be a rich man. Let us pray for rich men as well as pity them, for they carry weight in the race for eternal life. If they are saved, it can only be by the greatest miracles of God's grace. Our Lord's words are very solemn. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Matthew 19:24. Let us observe, finally, in this passage, 
how easily and readily unconverted men can agree in disliking Christ. We're told that when Pilate sent our Lord a prisoner to Herod, the same day Pilate and Herod were made friends together, for before they were at enmity between themselves. We know not the cause of their enmity. It was probably some petty quarrel, such as will arise among great as well as small. But whatever the cause of enmity, it was laid aside when a common object of contempt, fear, or hatred was brought before them. Whatever else they disagreed about, Pilate and Herod could agree to despise and persecute Christ. The incident before us is a striking emblem of a state of things which may always be seen in the world. Men of the most discordant opinions can unite in opposing truth. Teachers of the most opposite doctrines can make common cause in fighting against the gospel. In the days of our Lord, the Pharisees and Sadducees might be seen combining their forces to entrap Jesus of Nazareth and put him to death. In our own times, we sometimes see infidels and idolaters, worldly pleasure lovers and bigoted ascetics, the friends of so-called liberal views and the most determined opponents of all changes, all ranked together against evangelical religion. One common Hatred binds them together. They hate the cross of Christ. To use the words of the apostles in the Acts, Against your holy child Jesus, whom you have anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and all the people of Israel, are gathered together. Acts 4.27 All hate each other very much, but all hate Christ much more. The true Christian must not count the enmity of the world a strange thing. He must not marvel if, like Paul at Rome, he finds the way of life a way everywhere spoken against, and if all around him agree in disliking his religion. Acts 28.22 If he expects that by any concession he can win the favor of man, he will be greatly deceived. Let not his heart be troubled. He must wait for the praise of God. The saying of his master should often come across his mind. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John fifteen, nineteen. Chapter 23, verses 13 through 25. And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, said unto them, Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people. And behold, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man touching those things whereof ye accuse him. No, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him. And lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. 
for of necessity he must release one unto them at the feast. And they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man, and release unto us Barabbas, who for a certain sedition made in the city and for murder was cast into prison. Pilate, therefore, willing to release Jesus, spake again to them. But they cried, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! And he said unto them the third time, Why? What evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. And they were instant with loud voices requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired. But he delivered Jesus to their will. We should observe for one thing in this passage what striking testimony was born to our Lord Jesus Christ's perfect innocence by his judges. We are told that Pilate said to the Jews, You have brought this man unto me as one that subverts the people. And behold, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man concerning those things whereof you accuse him, no, nor yet Herod. The Roman and the Galilean governors were both of one mind, both agreed in pronouncing our Lord not guilty of the things laid to his charge. There was a peculiar fitness in this public declaration of Christ's innocence. Our Lord, we must remember, was about to be offered up as a sacrifice for our sins. It was fit and right that those who examined him should formally pronounce him a guiltless and blameless person. It was fit and right that the Lamb of God should be found by those who slew him a lamb without blemish and without spot. 1 Peter 1.19 The overruling hand of God so ordered the events of his trial that even when his enemies were judges, they could find no fault and prove nothing against him. The circumstance before us may seem of trifling moment to a careless Bible reader. It ought, however, to commend itself to the heart of every well-instructed Christian. We ought to be daily thankful that our great substitute was in all respects perfect, and that our surety was a complete and faultless surety. What child of man can count the number of his sins? We leave undone things we should do, and do things we ought not to do every day we live. But this must be our comfort, that Christ, the righteous, has undertaken to stand in our place, to pay the debt we all owe, and to fulfill the law we have all broken. He did fulfill that law completely. He satisfied all its demands. He accomplished all its requirements. He was the second Adam who had clean hands and a pure heart and could therefore enter with boldness into God's holy hill. Psalm 24, 4. He is the righteousness of all sinners who believe in him. Romans 10, 4. In him, all believers are counted 
perfect fulfillers of the law. The eyes of a holy God behold them in Christ, clothed with Christ's perfect righteousness. For Christ's sake, God can now say of the believer, I find in him no fault at all. Let us learn for another thing in this passage how thoroughly the Jews took on themselves the whole responsibility of our Lord Jesus Christ's death. We are told that when Pilate was willing to release Jesus, the Jews cried, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Again, we're told that with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. This fact in the history of our Lord's Passion deserves particular notice. It shows the strict accuracy of the words of the apostles in aftertimes when speaking of Christ's death. They speak of it as the act of the Jewish nation and not of the Romans. You killed the Prince of Life, says Peter to the Jews at Jerusalem. You slew and hanged him on a tree, Acts 3.15, Acts 5.30. The Jews have both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, says Paul to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 2.15. So long as the world stands, the fact before us is a memorial of man's natural hatred against God. When the Son of Man came down to earth and dwelt among his own chosen people, they despised him, rejected him, and slew him. We should observe, lastly in this passage, the remarkable circumstances connected with the release of Barabbas. We are told that Pilate released Barabbas, the man in prison, for insurrection and murder. But he delivered Jesus over to them to do as they wished. Two people were before him, and he must needs release one of the two. The one was a sinner against God and man, a malefactor stained with many crimes. The other was the holy, harmless, and undefiled Son of God, in whom there was no fault at all. And yet Pilate condemns the innocent prisoner and acquits the guilty. He orders Barabbas to be set free and delivers Jesus to be crucified. The circumstance before us is very instructive. It shows the bitter malice of the Jews against our Lord. To use the words of Peter, they denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted to them. Acts 3.14 It shows the deep humiliation to which our Lord submitted in order to procure our redemption. He allowed himself to be reckoned lighter in the balance than a murderer and to be counted more guilty than the chief of sinners. But there is a deeper meaning yet beneath the circumstance before us which we must not fail to observe. 
The whole transaction is a lively emblem of that wondrous exchange that takes place between Christ and the sinner, when a sinner is justified in the sight of God. Christ has been made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Christ the innocent has been reckoned guilty before God, that we, the guilty, might be reckoned innocent and be set free from condemnation. If we are true Christians, let us daily lean our souls on the comfortable thought that Christ has really been our substitute and has been punished in our stead. Let us freely confess that like Barabbas, we deserve death, judgment, and hell. But let us cling firmly to the glorious truth that a sinless Savior has suffered in our stead and that believing in Him, the guilty may go free. Well, that brings us to the end of part two of this special bumper Easter edition of Nightlight. Meditations on the Easter Story by J.C. Ryle, who penned these meditations over 150 years ago. But still, I'm sure you agree, have so many lessons and insights that are applicable to our walk with the Lord today. So stay tuned for part three and... It looks like we'll even have to have a part four in order to make it all the way to the end of Luke chapter 24. You may not, of course, have time to listen to them all this Easter, but they'll be just as feeding to listen to any time of the year. Thanks so much to Michael Dooley for the beautiful instrumental music that complemented the readings. And we still have a few minutes left to go. So let's go out with one of Michael's very latest instrumentals, it's called The Beauty of the Lord. And I'll be back very soon for part three of Meditations on the Easter Story. So stay tuned.